Well, you know, they say in the scriptures, John said, uh, I have no greater joy than to know that my children are walking in the truth. And when you reach my age in my mid-70s now, I get to see a lot of that joy. I worship in a church that is pastored by my son. And it has been a joy already this morning to sit and listen to Pastor Tim, read the scriptures, pray, and lead the service as well. And so these kinds of things bring me a great, great joy, and my joy is full already this morning in having sat under Tim's just leadership of this service. You know, all of us have probably come to some point in our life or remember some occasion where we said to somebody, whatever you do, don't forget something, or make sure you remember something. Sometimes it's a matter of convenience. Don't forget to water the grass. Don't forget to take the cake out of the oven at 5 o'clock. They're not significant because if the worst that can happen is the grass gets dry and a cake gets burnt. Sometimes it's a little bit more important. Make sure you deposit the check before 5 o'clock tonight because then you might have a check that bounces and that's a problem. And sometimes they can be really critical when you say to somebody, don't forget to give the child the antibiotics before you put her to sleep as an instruction to the babysitter. That would be of critical dimension. Now, so we've all had occasions where we've either said that to someone or had it said to us. Whatever you do, don't forget. Now change the situation a little bit. Uh, imagine you're on the leadership team of this church uh, and you are, have been interviewing a young couple and you're sending them out to plant another church. And in this interview, uh, that, that couple has shared with you their visions and their strategies and whatnot. And now it's your turn. You say, well, we got it. We got your plans. We like you. We're going to commission you. Whatever you do, only thing we ask you to remember is what? How would you finish that sentence? Now, you might say, well, just a minute. That depends on the couple. That depends on where we're sending them. Yeah, all of that is true. But there is one thing the scripture itself tells us that in that situation, you need to say to this couple, whatever you do in this ministry, don't forget. What is that? Well, we don't have to guess because the scriptures tell us. In the early church, <coughs> Peter, James, and John, who were leaders in the church in Jerusalem, uh, had, were meeting with the Apostle Paul, who had come to Christ through some miraculous encounters, and they acknowledged the fact that Paul's ministry was to take the gospel to the Gentiles, those who were from a non-Jewish background, while they themselves would be focusing on the ministry to those from a Jewish background. And they say to Paul, but whatever you do, and remembering that situation, the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians, he says, all they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do. Fast forward 2,000 years to where we are right now in First Alliance Church. Uh, when Andrew asked me to come and speak today and fit what I'm going to say into this uh, sermon series on justice, this was the verse that came to my mind. But let me backtrack a little bit. In the last three sermons, what have you been learning? You've learned that essence of justice in one sense is to disadvantage yourself for the sake of the advantage of another. Then you learned that this was rooted in God's wonderful redemption. His generosity to us in Jesus is the mark of our generosity to others. And then last week, you learned about the fact that this was not some works righteousness, but this is an expression of our faith in Jesus. Today, I want to come from those general broad principles to drill down to this particular issue uh, of, of justice when it comes to remembering the poor. And I want to lay some biblical foundations today because a lot of Christians don't have a very good grip on what the scriptures have to say about this matter of remembering the poor. Uh, the first thing that comes to our mind in the scripture is that God identifies with the poor. 
In Proverbs chapter 4, verse 13, it says, Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. So oppression to the poor is contempt for the maker. Kindness to the poor is honoring God. Proverbs 19, verse 17 says a similar thing. Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord. <laughs> you're giving to the poor, you're actually lending to the Lord. And he will reward them for what they've done. And when you move from the Old Testament to the New Testament, we see the same emphasis. Jesus says, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. But whatever you did not do for the one of the least of these, you did not do it for me. So whether it's in the Old Testament or the New Testament or the mouth of Jesus, God and Jesus identify with the poor and how we treat the poor is tantamount to how we are treating God and Jesus. Now, lest our initial reaction to something like this, oh, look, 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 this is all sounding like a social gospel. Typically, evangelicals react to any messages like this and say, well, that's what the liberals do. They all focus upon the poor. Isn't the essence of the gospel about personal salvation. Well, it is, but it's not at the expense of this. Uh, this too is an essential part of the gospel as we shall see. So not only does God identify with the poor, this dimension is an essential part of the gospel. Uh, the, in, the gospel begins with the incarnation, which is a perfect bridge between these two points. When God became a man, the beginning of the gospel, he became the, among the poorest of the poor. He his identification with the poor went that far. And at the beginning of the gospel of the incarnation, it begins amongst the poor. And then his very first message in Luke's gospel, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, he's quoting Isaiah 61, to proclaim good news to the poor. This is his opening declaration. Uh, you can recall, for example, on his two, uh, uh, two of the most well-known parables of Jesus, what are they? The Good Samaritan and the Prodigal Son, right? The Prodigal Son is about a sinner needing to come back, what we normally understand by the gospel, but the Good Samaritan is about ministry to the poor, and Jesus put those two right up in front. Later on in the ministry, or very early on in John the Baptist, wanting to know, he was in prison now, and he wanted to know if this Jesus was really the Messiah that he was waiting for, he sent his disciples and said, hey, this is the question. Are you the one we should be waiting for? You know what Jesus says in terms of his answer to that? He says, uh, so John the Baptist says, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? Jesus says, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard, all the miracles, etc. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. According to Jesus, this is one of the things that sets him apart of, as a true Messiah. Uh, we have some very good friends of ours who work... Uh, in, in the Middle East, and their primary folks among the poor. And one of the things he always says is, whenever you take the gospel to a group of people, always ask yourself the question, if you want to know this is the true gospel, is this good news for the poor, or is it not? Very, very interesting. Thoroughly biblical. Well, later on in Jesus' ministry, you find him uh, looking at a man named Zacchaeus. Now, Zacchaeus was not a poor man. He was a rich man. And, but he got rich at the expense of the poor. He was a chief tax collector. He fleeced the poor. So Jesus said, I'm inviting myself to your home. Now, we don't know what they talked about. It's not recorded for us in the gospel, but we can believe that because Jesus was all about good news. He probably explained the gospel to him. Well, what we do know is the result of that encounter because this is what we read. Zacchaeus says this, here and now, 
I give half of my possessions to the poor, that is charity, and if I have cheated anyone out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount, and that is justice. And look at Jesus' declaration. Today, salvation has come to this house. It wasn't because Zacchaeus said, I received Jesus Christ as my Savior and I prayed the sinner's prayer. Therefore, salvation has come to the house. No, he didn't use language like that. He said, because of his declaration about charity and justice, whereas before he was fleecing the poor, Jesus said today, salvation has come to this house. And later on, as we move in the Gospels further to the life of the Apostle Paul, he did exactly what the Jerusalem apostles had said to him, only remember the poor. Wherever he went, preaching to the Gentile churches, he took a collection. He took a collection regularly because the Jerusalem church, made up mostly of Jewish converts, because of a famine there, were extremely poor and going through very hard times. And wherever he preached to the Gentiles, Paul always took up a collection. And this is what he said to them. He said in 2 Corinthians, because of the service by which you have proved yourself, this is collecting, giving money to the poor in the church in Judaism, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. Basically what he's saying is, the church in Jerusalem from a Jewish background highly suspicious of the gospel being preached to the Gentiles, one of the ways in which they will become assured of the fact that you have truly become followers of Jesus is that you are caring for them in their poverty. You are proving yourself. A demonstration of the genuineness of our confession of the gospel is our concern for the poor. So God and Jesus identify with the poor. It is an essential part of the gospel and yet there's a lot of reluctance on our part when it comes to giving freely to the poor. One of the quickest ways to gauge that is how you are responding even now. How many of you, when you heard a message like this, or as I began, are rubbing your hands and glee and saying, give me more, give me more. No, you're probably saying, oh no, this is going to cost me more. That very reaction tells us that something is not right within us. Throughout the Old Testament, as far as we know, there isn't a record of Israel regularly obeying many of the sabbatical year commandments and the jubilee year commandments that were all about generosity and justice, which is why there were prophetic warnings regularly throughout the Old Testament. Nothing changes in the New Testament. Remember the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, what must I do to have eternal life? This is what Jesus said to him. He, Jesus said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. His initial reaction to give to the poor was one of sadness because he had to part with a lot that he had. And the purpose of Jesus saying this to a man who said, I want eternal life, is to expose him to the bondage that was in his life, the bondage of things, the tyranny of things, as one man calls it. On another occasion, when the Pharisees were complaining that he hadn't washed his hands ceremonially, Jesus said to them, now the new Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. But now, as for what is inside, be generous to the poor and everything 
will be cleaned for you. Now, that's an interesting way to respond to a legalistic issue, right? They were upset because he wasn't washing his hands. Jesus didn't rebuke legalism and say, you're not justified by works, you'll be justified by faith. No, he, he goes right after the central issue. Because, you know, the Bible teaches us that the love of money is the root of all evil. So he says, you want everything to be clean? Forget about washing the outside. Clean the inside. And one essential part of cleaning yourself up on the inside is this generosity to the poor. And here's another way in which he awakens. His ministry was regularly one of awakening us to this bondage within us. One time Jesus said this, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Now, listen. If I were to ask you which is the least obeyed commandment of Jesus in the whole Bible, I think this would be it. Do you know any Christian who's done this? I'm not talking about people who go and walk. Do you know anybody who says, no, I'm not going to invite the rich. I'm not going to invite the people who can invite me back. Listen, if, if Jesus came and told me this, it would precipitate a crisis in my life. Again, revealing the bondage that is within our heart. Because you see, we would rather hang around with people who are either in our same social circles or strata or maybe upward, upwardly mobile. mobile. That's what we are. Well, Jesus was talking all about downward mobility. So all of these things, his words to the rich young ruler, his words to the Pharisees who are obsessed with legalism. His commandment like this. All of that has that same function of awakening this reluctance, this bondage, this tyranny of things in our life. And it is a real blind spot. Let me go back to the Old Testament for a minute. You remember God destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, if I were to ask us today, what was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? we would think almost exclusively of the sexual sins associated with Sodom. But it's interesting, in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49, Ezekiel says this, Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. What was it? He doesn't mention anything sexual at all. He says, She and her daughters were arrogant, which is pride, overfed, they had far too much, and unconcerned, they did not help the poor and the needy. Did we know that? No. So whether in the old or the new, we are continually being awakened and shocked by this realization that even though God identifies with the poor and Jesus, even though it is an essential part of the gospel, there is this deep-seated reluctance on our part to part with what we have, to give more freely. And yet, Yet, Paul tells us, we need to give generously. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So this is uh, in the context of that collection that he was taking from the Gentile churches for the poor Jewish church back in Jerusalem. So if God and Jesus identify with the gospel, if Generosity to the poor and justice is an essential part of the gospel. If at the same time we have this bondage to things that makes us reluctant to do this, and yet we are commanded to be generous, 
it then raises this question, how are we going to escape this prison of reluctance? How do we move towards this joyful obedience? Well, listen, the gospel is good news even for this. It's not intended to be something burdensome, but something that progressively becomes a joyful, free exercise. And so we need to move from now to asking the question, how does God motivate us? Like every dimension of the gospel, this part of the gospel also begins with what God has done and continues with what God has continued to do in us and for us. After his resurrection, he showed himself to his disciples for 40 days, giving them many proofs of the fact that he was risen from the dead. And then he commissions them with the gospel to go into all the world and preach the gospel, which we now know includes remembering the poor, as Peter, James, and John said to the apostle Paul. And then he said to them, having said to them to go and preach the gospel, which often in alliance circles we talk of as the last command, it's not the last command because Jesus gave one more command after that. After telling them to go, he then says, don't go. Don't go until what? Until you receive power from on high. Because without the equipping of the Holy Spirit, we would not be able to proclaim or to live out the gospel, including this dimension. And so first and foremost, God motivates by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. In Acts chapter 4, after the Pentecostal experience and the Spirit had been poured out, one of the marks, one of, the marks of this new community, not only did they devote themselves to the apostles' doctrine, uh, devote themselves to prayer and the breaking of bread and to joyful fellowship in homes, they also read this, no one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything that they had. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands and houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to whoever had need. Now, all of this was voluntary. It wasn't forced. This wasn't the modern-day social justice of communism where things are forced upon people. And we know that because uh, one couple that sold money and then deceived people into thinking they were giving it all. Different, different story altogether. But Peter's comment to them was, didn't the money, house belong to you before you sold it? And wasn't the money yours afterwards? In other words, there was no forced redistribution of wealth and all that kind of stuff that we also hear. These. Those are misunderstandings of the gospel. This cannot be forced or legislated. This is a voluntary work that is accomplished by the work of the Holy Spirit within our lives, breaking us free from the tyranny of things. So that's the first way God motivates us. The first thing is that. Secondly, he also motivates us by showing us what is at stake in us. God not only motivates by the Spirit, he shows us what is at stake in us, for us. Not just for the poor as we give. Yes, we bless them, but something is happening to us both negatively and positively. Negatively, for example, he says this, he said, whoever shuts their ears to the cry of the poor will also cry out and not be answered. In other words, our prayers are going to be hindered if we shut our ears to the cry of the poor. And elsewhere, Proverbs, which I haven't bothered to put up on the overhead, says those, ever who, those who shut their eyes to the poor will be cursed by God. Now, what does it mean to shut your eyes or shut your ears? It means to insulate ourselves. It means to let a sermon like this go in one ear and out the other ear and say, okay, thank goodness, that's finished. It means to skip over books, sermons, articles that confront us. It means to quickly change the channel 
if you read, if you hear something about the poor, because that's making us uncomfortable. It means to insulate ourselves from any kind of contact or involvement with those who might be much less fortunate than us. Those are all ways in which we shut our ears and shut, shut our eyes to the poor. And when, when God says elsewhere that not only will your prayers not be answered, you'll be cursed. This isn't an arbitrary God who's just angry that we're not behaving the way he wants us to behave and punish us. It's not about a God who's going to strike us down. He's talking about the inevitable effects that these things have on our own lives. Remember, we're already in bondage. He wants to set us free from that bondage. And so the curses, if you will, are the natural consequences of a life that continues to allow ourselves to be in the grip of the tyrant and shuts our ears to the The poor are a gift from God to us. They're not a burden. They're a gift from God to us to free us. That's why the, the curse, I guess, is the bondage itself. I mean, what greater bondage can you imagine than someone having lots of money having opportunities to bless others and not being able to do it. I'm thinking of, of a person that I actually know. I don't know him personally, but his daughter was a good friend of my wife's. And she used to they discovered that every August or September, he would start getting very severe stomach cramps. And the doctors couldn't find any reason for it. Do you know what it was? He was beginning to think about all the money he would have to spend at Christmas. And he was a wealthy man. That's what he's talking about. That's the curse, right? That's what God wants us to set us free from. So that's negative. Positively, he says, okay, I'm not sure why this isn't advancing at this point. Oh, there we go. Uh, positively, those who give to the poor will lack nothing. Now, this is not a give to get gospel. Don't get me wrong. Jesus is not suddenly preaching, or Proverbs is not preaching a prosperity gospel. What is the getting that comes from the giving? The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, which is the longest sustained teaching in the New Testament about our responsibility to the poor and, and how to deal with money. In fact, you should read those two chapters. He says this. Oops, sorry. He says, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And notice this. This is the giving. This is the getting from our giving. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times. That's material sufficiency is the first thing he promises. You may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. That is spiritual abundance. And thirdly, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increasing the harvest of your righteousness. Seed is what we sow to give to other people. So the three things that Paul says will happen to us as we give generously, material sufficiency, spiritual abundance, and multiplied resources to give even more. That's the exact opposite of my wife's friend's father, right? One was getting stomach aches at the thought of giving. The other one is saying, wow, God, this is how you're going to bless me. Sufficiency in material things, not, 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 not wealthy, not prof, uh, prosperity gospel, material sufficiency so I don't have to worry. A spiritual abundance and harvest, 
where I can get as greedy as I want to be for more and more and more of spiritual abundance and a multiplied capacity to give to others. That's what's at stake. Negatively a shriveled up spirit, positively this kind of beautiful giving. So, here's what we've learned so far before I wrap this message. We've learned that God identifies with the poor. We've learned that the ministry to the poor is an essential part of the gospel, not to be separated from the moral side of it. Yet we've also seen that we are reluctant to give, but, le- but commanded to give generously. And then we've seen how God motivates this generosity. First, by the work of the Spirit in our lives, and secondly, by reminding us of both the negative and the positive consequences so that a new kind of desire is born within us. In the light of all of this, what is to be our response? I'm giving you five words that came to me. This is a journey. It's not everything that you're going to do tomorrow morning. My journey into this dimension of my Christian faith started in 1975. I became a Christian at the age of 17 in 1963. 1975, at the age of 30, I first began to understand some of these things. And now, what else, 46 years later, I'm still continuing to learn. Here are five words that might help you at least get your feet on the starting block and maintain this journey for the rest of your life. So first of all, repent. The more strongly we react to things like this, which reveals the bondage in our heart, the more desperately we need to repent. I mean, let me ask you this question. If Jesus were to come to us and say what he said to the rich young ruler, sell everything you have and give to the poor, how would you react? We might walk away sad, but here's an alternative way in which we might respond. Fall at his feet in repentance. And just to show what that looks like, I actually wrote out a prayer that I pray sometimes when I'm confronted by this. This Just to give you a flavor, your own words can be different. Lord Jesus, I'm terrified to hear you say that because I have so much and I realize I'm in bondage to things. The thought of having to give them all up makes my heart grow heavy. At the same time, Lord, I want to obey you more than anything, so I fall at your feet and beg for your mercy. I acknowledge that I'm enslaved to things. Please help me to obey you in this area. This is one example of a prayer of confession and repentance. You can make it your own. By the way, repentance also means a change of mind, not just breast-beating tears, which means you need to change the way you think. The culture around us is an acquisition culture, a materialistic culture, a consumer culture. So we need a robust reprogramming of our minds, a renewing of our minds, which means you need to look at the kind of scripture that we've talked about today, which means you need to take another look at this message and dig into what the scriptures actually say about it. That's as much a part of repentance. It's not just confession. It is also a deliberate renewing of your mind. That's the journey that I got started on in 1930. And how did I get started on it? With the second word. Oh, sorry, before that, I'll come back to ask. So once you've repented and you're working on the change of mind, ask, 
Ask the Lord for a couple of First of all, ask the Lord for the Holy Spirit. Remember, we said we can't do this apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. Remind him, Jesus, you said that you came to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. Jesus, you told us to not go until we receive power from on high. Jesus, John the Baptist said that you are the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So I am asking you to fill me over and over and over again with the Holy Spirit. If I'm, that's the way you said you're going to motivate me. Hold him to his word. Ask him to fill you with his spirit regularly. I mean, think of yourself. You don't need to raise your hand. When was the last time you actually asked to be filled with the Holy Spirit? And then ask the Lord to bring a poor person into your life. We, 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 we like to deal in generalities. The poor are this general mass. No, we need to deal with individuals. I wish I had time to tell you the story of a woman named Paula. My wife ran into her while shopping at Winners one day. In winter time, this lady had, she was illegally in this country at that time. She had been impregnated by some man who just disappeared, leaving her with his baby. But she was worshipping in a church and she was choosing a dress for this baby's dedication. And so she just turned to my wife and said, how do you think I look in this? This woman had high heels and was winter. So my wife took compassion and said, I'll drive you to your home, wherever you were. And in the process discovered all these things about her. And that, today that little baby just graduated from university at the age of 22. And we've had the privilege of being involved in her life to do our part in this particular poor person's life who has since come back to the Lord and whenever she visits our home, she just fills that home with music and with singing. Praise for us, quickens our faith by her faithfulness. So ask God to do something like that, to bring a poor person and then begin to invest in them. Thirdly, the third word is to read. My journey began by reading a book by a man named Ronald Sider called Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. And then in 2008, and this is the book I would recommend if you want one, Rich Stearns, who's the president of World Vision USA, wrote a book called The Hole in Our Gospel. I would encourage you to get that book and read it, The Hole in Our Gospel. And then fourthly, start giving. Give wisely. Uh, I say give to an organization that works with the desperately poor. I got involved in an organization called World Relief, which now is called Tear Fund Canada. And the reason that I was attracted to that is they work on a principle called microcredit, where you find in people with initiative who are poor and give them, loan them money, but also teach them how to save and pay back that loan. And so 99% of those loans are paid back by people. And by the end of that time, they have a little flourishing business they now have habits of saving, and that original money is now available to start again with somebody else. Microcredit is a wonderful, wonderful way in which a sustained ministry to the poor can happen. And then finally, lastly, whichever, whichever organization you give to, pray for that organization. Pray for the ministry. And the reason you need prayer is that the devil hates those whom God loves. God loves the poor, remember, he identifies the poor, Satan hates them, which means he hates the people who work amongst them. And therefore, they just as much as the missionary who's translating the Bible into some obscure language, as the evangelist who's preaching in very difficult country, they all need our prayers for sure. And Paul gives all kinds of prayer requests for that. But the people who work among the poor, the desperately poor, also desperately need our prayers. Five verbs that have helped me in the process. Repent, ask, read, give, and pray. Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, thank you for the short journey that we've been on, attempting to get first our, our feet into the starting blocks, as it were. I had no idea when I read that book at the age of 30 what would happen to my life, where I was headed. I, didn't, I wasn't a pastor at that time. And then you continue to sustain me by the books I read, by the people that brought into my life, the poor like this, this woman in our life, as well as those who work with the poor. And so I pray the same for everyone who's listening today, maybe for the first time, maybe as a reminder of something that they once knew but had forgotten. We, you know each heart. And as Solomon prayed when he dedicated the temple, you deal with each person's heart according to what is in their heart. You don't deal in formulas with all of us. You love each one of us individually. So may your love for each person who's listening today give them a specific foot in the starting block. And if you want to use one of these things, Lord Jesus, to help them get started, that's fine. Otherwise, by your spirit, you're well able to show them other ways. And then I want to bless this entire church that together as a community, as they are journeying through this series, Father, that permanent, irreversible transformations will take place in their life. In Jesus' name.